Lost and Sound is sponsored by Audio Technica. Audio Technica are a global but still family run company that makes studio quality yet affordable products. They made the first microphone I ever bought. They make stuff that I use. They make stuff that you probably use too because they believe that high quality audio should be accessible to all. So head on over to audiotechnica.com to check out all of their range of stuff. Okay, so the first Lost and Sound of 2023. I'm Paul Hamford, and you're about to hear a conversation I had with a filmmaker with an utterly unique approach to both sound and vision, Mark Jenkin, in this week's Lost and Sound. Welcome to the first Lost and Sound of 2023. I'm Paul Hamford. I'm a writer and author based in Berlin. And I hope you had an amazing time over the festive period, whether it's something that you celebrate or something that you don't celebrate. I hope regardless, it was an incredible time for you. And it's great to be back with the first of this year's shows. This is the show where each episode we meet the musical innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their own unique thing. And we talk about life and the things that inspire us to make the things that we make. Because I really do generally believe that beautiful things come out of sharing come out of sharing knowledge and talking about life and art. They don't come from hoarding it and being a edgelord stuck in a castle somewhere. Previous guests on the show have included Peaches, Jim O'Rourke, Chili Gonzalez, Letitia Sadier, Ghost Poet, Cozy Funny Tutti, Nastia, Anton Newcomb, Nightmares on Wax, and First and More. That's just a little, little, little few people that I've had on the show. And today maybe is going to be a little bit different because for the first time ever on the show, I've got a guest that is primarily known not as a music maker, although he does make the music for his films, but as a filmmaker. And that is Mark Jenkin. Now, why, you might ask, on a music podcast, would I have someone who is more of a filmmaker than a music maker? Well, I mean, I've got a hunch for one thing that I think I love film and I imagine that you probably do too that's just a bit of a hunch there but i think sometimes approaches to arts and creativity can be really 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 interconnected and i think mark jenkin is an artist whose whose work has such commonality in a very strange way with with people that make music and not just in the way he approaches making films but also in the way he approaches sound for his films. And he also does the scores, at least for his last two films anyway. His breakout film, Bait, 
deals with tensions between locals and tourists in the Cornish fishing village. And when it came out in 2019, it wasn't just a critical hit, but it was like a surprise box office hit as well. I loved it. And his new film, Ennis Main, which I saw a screener of just before Christmas, is a folk horror film set on a Cornish island in the 1970s. It has this kind of dream logic to it. It's it's haunting, it's unsettling, it's eerie. It deals with things that you just think about for a while afterwards. And one of the most startling elements of the way Mark makes films is how he uses sound, both bait and Ennis Main, all of the sound that you hear was recorded afterwards in post-production. Everything you hear from dialogue to footsteps, much like how the Italian giallo films of the 1970s were made. Um, if you've seen the film, Peter Strickland's film, Barbarian Sound Studio, you'll, you'll know all about this and the, the details of things like stabbing a cabbage to replicate stabbing a human skull and all of that kind of stuff. He also composed the score for Ennis Main, which has this, it sort of reminds me of the disintegrating loops of William Basinski, as well as the eerie lost in our memories hauntology of Boards of Canada. In fact, I'd go as far to say that the whole film of Ennis Main is probably quite possibly the most Boards of Canada film I've ever, ever, ever seen. And I mean that as a massive compliment. So we had this conversation between me and Mark Jenkin just before Christmas. The weird, weird sort of happenstance of it in a way was that I wasn't in Berlin at the time. I'd gone to see my dad in uh, for Christmas and he lives in Devon, quite near Plymouth. I know this might not mean much to you listeners who are in in Berlin or Europe or or further afield in in America or Asia, but it's a part of the country that means a lot to me. Um, I kind of heart partly come from this part of the country, and I was visiting my dad, and it's very near Cornwall. Um, you know, you could probably you could probably get an Uber to Mark's house and still not, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. You could you could probably do that. Um, so, yeah, there was this happenstance of both being in the same part of the world at the same time. I uh, really loved having this chat. And this is what happened. Hello. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? How's it going? Hi, I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, not, not too bad. Not too bad. I think I'm actually, I live in Berlin, but actually at the moment, I think I'm quite near to you, actually. I'm in, I'm just about 30 minutes into the Devon side of Plymouth. Ah, uh, right. Well, you're in Plymouth? Um, no, it's a bit, it's a bit more like sort of between Totnes and Plymouth. Oh, right. What, yeah. uh, like, what's that, Ivy Bridge? Very near, yeah. Uh, right. King, Kingsbridge is probably the nearest sort of, uh, okay. sort of town and, and stuff like that, but I'm just visiting my dad for Christmas. Right. And stuff, so, yeah, In the yeah. South Hams? Yes, that is exactly it, yeah. Definitely. Right. There's a South Hams radio is nearby, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet it's incredibly popular. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Like, what, local radio. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's got some good adverts. So. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's the highest form of art, I think, is local radio adverts. Definitely, definitely. I've lost you. 
Yeah, sorry, no, the signal. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, thanks so much okay. for spe- speaking with me today. Really awesome to chat to you. And uh, yeah, so I managed to get uh, I managed to get a screener from nice people at the BFI of okay. and it's May. This it's pronounced Maine, right? And it's yeah. Maine. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the soundtrack as well. And um, obviously really loved it. And one of the things sort of um, reminded me of, because I think we were both probably born in the 70s, right? Yeah. Um, is that there's this sort of, you know, in, you know, obviously like labels are a bit bland to call things up, but, you know, the sort of feeling of this kind of impending horror in the film and the sort of folkiness of the sort of setting, it kind of reminded me of a lot of things from my childhood that were kind of scary that I don't know, really know why, you know, and I wanted to know if that resonated with you or if like, you know, what you kind of drew on from early on in your life to kind of create this sort of atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I was born in 1976. So mm. although my consciousness wasn't really awake until the early 80s, I would say, mm. I think even then we were we were being exposed to all that stuff that was made in the seventies and into the early eighties, which was a slightly terrifying horror stuff. So if you look at it now, there isn't any horror in it, but there's a real sense of foreboding combined with that time of life where everything's supposed to be exciting and opening up as a child, but around every corner, there seemed to be a promise of some sort of doom or some sort of, threat that might be real might be imagined you know and and i think there's there's quite a lot of the um uh public information films Mm. that are definitely really baked into my psyche you know so that we walk across the fields over here and there's an electric there's an electricity substation Mm. just in the field over there and it still fills me with horror you know, you have to, you know, I have to check that I'm, I haven't bought the frisbee with me in case it goes in there, <laughs> and then I'm tempted to go and retrieve it. And that stuff, you know, really stays with me. Whereas Morgan, who's my 14 year old stepson, doesn't have fear of electricity substations like I have, or over, <laughs> or over, overhead wires. You know, you walk under overhead wires and just quickly check that you're not flying a kite. And I don't think I've ever flown a kite in my life <laughs> but under electric uh, under overhanging um wires i you know that just all comes back to me so that's really baked in and it and it and it isn't with subsequent generations which i've mm. sort of forgotten so i think it does that kind of um a non-horror or horror or a suggested horror i think really resonates with our generation you know there is this this sort of hidden threat that um there may or may not be there, but certainly we were we were bashed over the head with it growing up. I could definitely relate to that. And um, I feel that there was also, I mean, in, in, you created this uh, programmes for the BFI as well in relation. And you put, um, I was quite happy to see you put a Children's Film Foundation film in that. And I, I remember film, like the Children's Film Foundation films as well. And, and like half remembered bits of Doctor Who as well. There was something as well in the production of those films as well, like, maybe they didn't have the money or the resources and I could sort of tell, but I didn't know why that something wasn't quite right in the way they were made. And that kind of freaked me out, but I didn't know why either at the time. Yeah. I think that's a, I think if you've got a lack of resources and lack of money and a lack of time, the first thing that you lose when you're making a film, formally speaking, is you lose any ability to be subtle. Hmm. 
So I, there's a very simple visual and sonic language emerges. And that, that's not to say that the, the, um, the, the content isn't ambiguous and subtle and nuanced, but the, um, the form becomes quite unsubtle. So something like Doctor Who, yeah, I find that, I find the form of that so much more haunting and so much, unner- so much more unnerving in the old, in the original Doctor Who's, and I do now, where it's all a bit, you know, I don't mean to be critical of it, but for mm. subjectively saying, I, you know, it, it's all a bit clean and a bit polished and a bit perfect for me, and that it doesn't feel as human as the stuff that's created where the resources aren't quite there. Because then, what happens if you haven't got the resources? Then the only thing you can rely on is your own ingenuity, which mm. which is very human, and that always comes along hand in hand with mistakes and then the, the film itself or the tv program itself feels a little bit a little bit untrustworthy a little bit fragile mm. like it might fall over at any time and i think that adds to then the kind of tension of watching it because you're thinking you know is even on a on un, unconscious level i think there's a fear in thinking is that bit of scenery just about to fall over you know and all of that mm. play that's why i love you know stuff that is draws attention to the form in that way because I think it's a much more heightened experience. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think also you sort of mentioned just now about like sort of when you have uh, restraints over things like budgets and and something that is like uh, one of the most things that pops out about your work is the way you know you use uh, like sound and you overlay sound on and use kind of old fashioned foley techniques and stuff. And I wanted to know ask you sort of about how this sort of technique that you've kind of I don't know it's, it's so trademark to you now you know how, how that kind of developed and came about yeah it's funny you say it's a trademark because I've just I've just given the new screenplay to a friend of mine to have a look and he kind of got back to me and just said this could only be your script and I think a lot of that is him reading when he's reading it he can hear what it's going to sound like as mm. well as what it's going to look like um I mean there's there's I can be sort of clever about it and claim that I had all of these thoughts about sort of evoking the the weird and the eerie as like Mark Fisher would describe it and working out formal ways of achieving that. But what, what actually happened was it, it happened the other way around. I, I choose, I chose the workflow that I wanted mm. to employ and I chose the equipment that I wanted to use. And for me, filmmaking, the heart, the heart of filmmaking is the camera. The camera's the most important thing. And that's real sacrilege to say that to a lot of people because mm. really the story and the script and the actors and everything should come first. But for me, I'm very much of the opinion that all of that is absolutely essential and becomes becomes the content of the film and the thing that people remember. But without a camera, you don't, have a film you know mm. and so I think it's very important to for me to think about the camera as the starting point because I'm I probably am a for I've been called a formalist film director and I probably mm. am a, a formalist but for me the form has got to be as important as the as the content so I use I use equipment that I really love using that I that I have the skill set to use and that I have an understanding of and that that creates an aesthetic that I really love and that means when you know when I started out doing that that meant that I couldn't record location sound so Mm. it was a decision that 
was kind of forced on me by my own decision to use that particular camera. And at first I was slightly daunted and thought, oh God, I've got to go back and do all the sound. Or, you know, at that stage I was thinking it would have to be me because I wasn't, you know, we didn't have budgets to get a, somebody in to do all the sound design. So I was kind of forced into it again by my own decisions. Mm. I always find the hardest way to go about things in everything I do. And and then when I started doing the sound, I just thought, well, this is, you know, I'm I'm a filmmaker. I love making films i love every aspect of it well i always used to love every aspect of it and here i am creating the sound and this is 50 percent of the film as the old cliche goes but actually when you're working on a low budget it's much more than 50 percent because all those deficiencies that that are in the visuals because of lack of time money and resources you can make up for in the sound design so when you're working on a low budget film the sound design becomes you know, even more important than the visuals in a lot of ways. And um, and then from then on, I just kind of thought, why would I ever get anybody to do the sound, you know, to mm. kind of give all of this fun and creativity to, to somebody else and and to pay them for it as well, <laughs> you know. Um, but but I think what's, what's then happened is I've created such a unique way of working with the sound through a lack of, knowledge of how to do it properly mm. that I've established a way of working that if I got somebody else to come in and do it for me I'd spend so much time trying to explain to them how and why I do things in specific ways I might as well kind of do it myself I mean having mm. said that on the, on the next film it's a, it's a bigger budget and there's going to be much more collaboration across all the departments so there will be a bit of that that needs to be done but at the moment I just you know I, I just love playing with analog sound you know and I worry that I come across as a like a hipster by saying that, but it's really not. It's through, it's, you know, I understand analog sound. The last time mm. that I really worked with sound was probably when I was at university studying film production and we were still using tape. So mm. when I started doing sound on my own films, I just went back to where I'd left off, which was to using a reel to reel tape recorder and, and pushing reel faders and turning reel pots and, and playing with tape so mm. that's where i've in, in some of it now i do do digitally but i make sure that i loop everything back out to tape because i like to mix to tape as i go along because with all of my filmmaking i like to commit to things in the moment you know, mm. when you're shooting film when you're shooting 16 millimeter film you haven't got an endless supply of film you make decisions on location that can't be fixed in post mm. while all of the creative minds are sort of focused during the shoot i try and use that energy to 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 make decisions in the moment and stick to them um when it comes to sound in the studio it's very easy for that to just drag on and on because it's a much mm. cheaper part of the process you're not dependent on things like weather and light and things like that i can do it in the studio i'm always within touching distance of a cup of tea you know it's a very comfortable mm. environment so then i sort of create restrictions to 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 recreate that feeling of focus that i would have on the shoot and 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 that's things like you know mixing to tape in the moment and going right well i've mixed that mm. that foley track and that amos track together can't be unpicked so i either decide that that's the one i'm going to use or i just do it again and once i've got the one that i want i move on so it's a very, again, a very specific and and I think if so, if somebody came in and, you know, sound designer might come in and just go, 
what the hell are you doing? Well, actually, I know I don't think a sound designer would because I think, you know, people people are always interested in different ways of working. But I think if, mm. you know, if the layman came in and, and looked at what I was doing, they would probably go, God, is that how you have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, no, it's not how you have to do it, but it's the way that I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, also, it's interesting what you're saying about formalism there as well. And um, about like, because I think in, in, in you know, because mostly I speak to me, so, more in music and I think there's much more seems to be much more of a kind of acceptance of formalism as part of the creative process when making music it's like someone can go well I've all I've got is this old Jupiter 8 and Ableton I haven't got anything else you know so that's my thing where you know and then that becomes part of the creative creative process itself you know is because like that's the ideas generate out of what you you know your your restrictions and um, mm. so I wanted to know sort of with with the you know was it with because you've done the soundtrack as well and um, I wanted to kind of know like you know was the soundtrack was that part of did that kind of develop as part of the kind of theme of the film as you're developing the theme or was it were you more like kind of creating a response to something you'd then made? Well, it, I mean to answer that I have to sort of go back to what happened with the bait soundtrack mm. which the previous film and again i was in the studio with a effectively a silent film that i was adding all the atmosphere's doing all the foley and bait never intended i never intended that to have any score or music of any any kind but what happened was i would there was a particular scene where the lead character is walking along the shingle beach and there's the sound of the sea and you can see waves breaking. Mm. So they would need to be foleyed or there'd need to be a sound effect on those waves mm. in sync. You know, it couldn't be a gen, a, a, like a generic sea sound, <laughs> you know, so I'd have to spot effect every wave breaking. But on top of that, I had to foley every one of his footsteps and there were hundreds. Mm. And it was just one morning I thought, oh, I can't be, I can't be asked to do this now, but it it left a big silence over this scene. And every time I was watching this scene, it was really grating because I, and I would mm. skip over it. And I thought, actually, I've got to really address this scene, but I can't watch it objectively until it's got these footsteps on it because it's just this big silence. What sort of parallel to that, I'd been editing the film and going a bit mad in the studio. And I'd spoken to my friend, Gweno, Mm. musician and and she'd been she'd been telling me about this little uh, Korg since analog synthesizer that she'd been using mm. and I thought and I I'd said to her you know I got in contact I said what's the name what's the name of that synthesizer I think I'm going to buy one just so I can just play around with mm. some sounds in the studio to to get me away from the film you know so when the film was getting too much I could just sit there and try and you know create some some tunes out of this little synth because mm. I've watched what she'd done with it. And I thought, oh, this synth is amazing. And actually it's not the synth that is amazing. It, it's her that's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just a tool. But I thought, oh, I'll be able to play like that if I have the synth. And it was, you know, it was relatively cheap. It was like a hundred quid or something. So I bought the synthesizer and I had it in the studio. And for a few weeks, I'd been creating some sort of drone sounds of it, out of it. And, and I just got one of those drones and laid it over this silent scene in bait. And left it and thought, oh, I don't have to do the 
footsteps anymore. I don't have to put the waves in. And this stayed just in the film. And then I started dropping different drones into different bits of the film where I kind of had the same problem. And then at times when I needed a, like a little emotional boost in, within the narrative, I would put, I would make another drone. And so really by default, I created this drone score for mm. bait so that when we showed the rough cut to people, there wouldn't be gaps in the sound. And it stayed in there for so long. I really sort of came to like that. Mm. and couldn't face removing it and then I said to the producers Kate and Lynn I said you know I I really like these drones that I've made and they both said yeah we really like them as well they should stay in there but that was a big sort of ego battle moment for me because I was like you know I'd already written the film Mm. shot the film directed the film done the sound on the film and now I was gonna do the score so (laughs) I didn't, you know, it was anonymous. There was no credit on it. Or mm. I didn't credit the score to anybody because I didn't even really think of it as a score. It was just part of my sound design. Mm. And then um, I got an Instagram message one day from Reg at Invader in Bristol mm. who said, you know, just just seen the film, loved the film and really loved the the score. How, how about um, would you consider putting it out through Invader? And I said, yeah, that'd be amazing. And he, he said, who did it? And I said, well, I, I did it. And um, they put it out, you know, and it did mm. quite well. And it was, you know, I, I still get so much positive feedback about that score. And it, you know, and it, it, was, it went out as a download and, and then as vinyl and also as a, as a cassette, mm. like a limited edition audio cassette, which was great because it was made on tape and then went back to tape. So anyway to answer your actual question when it came to Ennis Main I you know I'd spoken to Reg in the in the lead up to shooting the film or way before we shot the film and he said would you put the next one out on through invade and I was like yeah yeah of course so I started doing the score before we shot the film but I started doing the score whilst thinking about the album not the film mm. so I was thinking you know, I just, I, you know, I was thinking about the artwork. I was thinking about the track names, the, the sequencing, all of this kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, I'd be making a, doing, trying to create a tune, thinking, oh yeah, this will be, this will be great as track two, and then doing another mm. one, going, oh, this will be, this will be the single, and then, oh, this will be, you know, this with this little melody, this could be Christmas number one. And I was just like, right, I'm gonna have to have a little word with myself. <laughs> and I sat, I sat myself, sat down, and said, you, you know, you're not a musician you're not creating an album you're creating uh like for want of a better expression a sort of sonic landscape of which Mm. some analog synths and tape loop elements will be part of which may or may not ultimately go out as a soundtrack album and really have to rein in because i think like most most people of our generation i spent Mm. the 90s wanting to be a a rock star Mm. and so to accidentally stumble across you know, to fall into a, a record deal was like that really appealed to my sort of 18, 19 year old self. And I started thinking, oh, wow, I've got a record deal. What's my next record going to be? And, you know. <laughs> so, but what that did mean was that I'd actually created some sort of some drones and some atmosphere pieces that we ended up actually playing on location because I created them before, before we shot. And mm. most of them didn't end up being the versions we used in the, 
I used in the film, but there's certainly the, the flavour was kind of was there when we were shooting, which I think, you know, it's very difficult to qualify or quantify, but I think that does bleed into the visuals, you know, what you're what you're hearing at the moment when you're capturing those visuals. And certainly for for Mary and the rest of the cast, mm. I think having those kind of drone tracks playing imbues what they're doing with a certain feeling that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's interesting, there's a lot you're saying that's really, really interesting, but I think um, I was kind of interested as well about the kind of meeting of, you know, using this kind of sort of process, like you say, drones and loops. And it reminds me a little bit, not in a copying way, but just in terms of the spirit of like, say, like William Brzezinski or, or you know, or Boards of Canada as well or something like that. And then, you know, and then you, the film being sort of the sort of graininess of the 16 metre film, there seems to be like, there's like a kind of a match in a way between sort of like, I kind of think reverb is a bit like the grain of music, isn't it? You know, and was there sort of like a kind of a way you kind of, as an artist, you sort of feel like that just feels right to put those two sort of elements together. Because in some ways, you know, you look at a film from the 70s, you know, like based in the 70s in such a sort of, you know, pagan, I guess, kind of surroundings, you know, the temptation would be to sort of do like a wicker man on it, really. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But And I think maybe, you know, if I was, um, if I was more of a musician, I would maybe would have fallen into that trap and Mm. gone that way. But I like the mechanics of the music making. So I like, I like tape loops. You know, I work with two, two reel to reel tape machines and, you know, created like a Frippertronic style mm. infinite tape loop and used it to a greater or lesser extent. And, and I just loved not of that getting out of control, you know, the feedback mm. coming back and like very quickly, if you haven't balanced it right, the windows in the studio are going to go out. <laughs> And I think that's the same with film. You know, you can push it. There's bits in the film where, you know, I, I underexpose the negative a lot of the time so that then in the in the grade, in the colour retiming, we really push it to bring the colour out. And it and it and the grain starts to really come out and the image kind of mm-hmm. is on the edge of falling to pieces. But just before it falls to pieces, there's a real sweet spot. And sometimes it goes too far. There are scenes in Ennis Main where the grain is like, it looks like electrical interference on the screen because it's because it's, mm. it's too much. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, I, I echo and reverb are the two things that I just I really love. So I th- you know, from a musical point of view, it's like an obsession with sort of with dub music. You know, mm. listening to you know, and, and sort of like King Tubby. You know, and and starting as almost as an engineer before a musician mm. and. And letting the the mechanics of the instruments, or not even the instruments, but you know, like the, the echo boxes and all of that kind of stuff, I let let that take take precedent, you know. Mm. So, in being a formalist, effectively, or even like a structuralist musician, mm. I, you know, that's 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 as close as I'm comfortable with, uh, you know, in in terms of referring to myself as a musician. I'm, I'm much more an engineer. On, on that level and th- and that's difficult for me to say as well because I'm a terrible I haven't got an engineer's mind at all you know everything <laughs> I do half the things I try and do will I'll either get them completely wrong or I'll actually break the equipment while I'm mm. sort of trying to do it but yeah I think you're right I think there's some sort of resonance there with the um with the you know the first thing I do with the mm. with the um with any sort working with a synthesizer is put it through that maximum reverb as mm. soon as it comes out of the synth it's going through 
a you know a, a reverb box and then into the tape echo and that's all all i really do and you know i'm just turning i'm turning pots to to keep that under control and also on the soundtrack you know that i i sing on the soundtrack a little bit oh right which yeah. is a proper ego thing but it's and it just so happened that um i had an open microphone in the in the studio one day when the phone rang and my voice chatting on the phone went through the microphone i've been recording mm. some metal clanks with maximum reverb and i just heard my voice at one point go through the the reverb and through the tape loop i thought oh, that sounds nice and you know i can't sing <laughs> but i managed to like find one note that i sang into the microphone it's so reverbed and so echoed nobody even knows it's it's me but i remember when we premiered the film in can you know first time it was shown in front of a you know huge really important audience and i sat there with mary who's the star of the film and she just when that bit came up she just sort of like squeezed my hand as if to say you know can't believe you actually sang on your own <laughs> record another one of the things to tick off that's that's you on the film <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and i don't tend to tell people because it does sound like mm. a total you know especially if somebody hasn't seen the film i don't tell them because the i you know if i say oh yeah i sing on the soundtrack that certain, i think people have certain ideas about what that is but it's literally just what it's like a note it's one note yeah yeah um but <laughs> yeah but you know so disguised through reverb which, which i yeah i love yeah <laughs> well, what was your sort of background like you know because you grew up in cornwall did you yeah yeah, and what was the sort of, um, like, say, in the 90s, you mentioned about wanting to be a rock star, you know, and then I, I presume sort of like you developing an interest in film or had an interest in film. And I, what is that, what sort of like, you know, how did you sort of feel that you were kind of accessing, you know, what you've become now from then? Well, I started out, I shot my first role of film in 1993, mm. um, which was a, a music video. I'd, um, I'd made, no, I'd seen a film... Derek Jarman's The Garden late mm. one night on Channel 4 and I decided because that was shot on Super 8 mm. and really kind of blew apart the whole filmmaking process you know there were shots in that film of the people with cameras shooting the film and it was like oh mm. god this you know it was like a film turned inside out and I thought wow they shot this film on these little Super 8 cameras so I, I got hold of a Super 8 camera really cheaply in a roll of film and I went and shot my masterpiece which was a film that was i went to london mm. because my sister was at college in london at the time in tooting so i went to london i made a film that was called london and it was cut to london by the smiths mm. and what i did is i'd written down all the lyrics and all the timings and i went to london and filmed all of these visuals to go with the lyrics so it's mostly places you know and i ended up just going to tourist attractions really and filmed in <laughs> leicester square and trafalgar mm. square and uh big ben westminster bridge you know all this but i was just a kid you know just experimenting and and edited the whole thing in camera because i didn't think about editing and then went home um sent the film off to to europe where it would get processed and it came back like three weeks later and i put it on the projector and i had a a tape recorder next to the projector and I pressed play on the Smith's track and pressed mm. play on the projector. And that was, that was my first film. And really I'm just doing exactly the same now mm. where I shoot a very s small amount of film and then I, I play it and then um, I do the sound separately. 
I mean, back and you know, back then the audience was my mum, and now it's amazing to think that I'm kind of be, I'm able to work in the same way. But there is an audience, a, a, a bigger audience, which still does contain my mum right at the front. But <laughs> yeah. There's that, you know. I haven't. I've got. You know, I've been right around the houses. Mm. In that time, I, I started working more conventionally. You know, I went to. I went to university and studied film production or, uh, you know, uh, media production and, and learned the correct way of mm. doing things. And then it took me 20 years to come back to what I really wanted to do, which was to shoot film and to, and to work in a much more hands-on way. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not much of a computer person. Mm. I, obviously, everything I do is, is ultimately finished on a computer. The final film that most people watch is a digital version of the film. And I know that the my audience, it, I connect my audience a lot digitally, you know, through things like social media and stuff like that. Mm. But I keep it as analog as as far as I can, and that's always been my sort of my love. Really, is is that analog, the real, real materials, real real touch, real feel, you know, and it comes down to the sound as well. You know, nothing, mm. nothing quite like pushing a fader or turning a pot you know compared to using one finger on a mouse so I, I think I'm just in a really lucky position where I've I've got to the stage now where I can choose how I work mm. I don't do I don't really tend to do anything that I don't enjoy at the moment that's not to say it isn't hard work but the starting mm. point is always one of excitement that I'm I've still got the joy that I had as a 17 year old with with filmmaking yeah and did it I mean because because bait was such a kind of breakout hit and did that change did that put pressure on you to sort of uh you know for for kind of going into Ennis Main and and in terms of going like okay you've got this thing you've got this whole style that you've you've kind of uh you patented is maybe the wrong word but you know what I mean that this sort of there's your thing um but now did you feel like okay here's the pressure the pressure's on now to sort of deliver something following up this up yeah, I think so because you know, talking like music-wise, it's the difficult. It's the difficult second album. Yeah, have I used up all my ideas? Is one thing. Am I going to be given loads more resources, which means that I lose the sort of, you know, what was unique and what was authentic about the film? We were, uh, we were quite. Yeah, I, I think those were the two issues. Was did I have any more ideas? Because it had taken nearly 20, 20 minutes, twenty years to get yeah. this film from first coming up with the idea to getting it on screen mm. we filmed for uh, draft 42 of the script right yeah you know it'd been a hell of a pro i'd started the film in my mid-20s and finished it in my mid-40s so i did mm. there was what i was like wondering who the hell i would be once i finished it so i was quite quite a lot of what defined me was trying to get this film made mm. so once it was once it was finished i was thinking well yeah who am i now and would i have any more ideas and also are people going to throw resources and budget and stuff, you know, because the whole thing ended with us winning a BAFTA for it and mm. it taking a, a huge amount of money at the UK box office for a film of that scale. So mm. it became very apparent, it became apparent very quickly that I was going to get offered a lot of bigger projects. And then, luckily I had really good people around me, including my agent who just said, you know, just do, do 
do the same thing again effectively mm. not make the same film but stay at the same scale and get it done quickly before you have time you know he's talking to me before i have time to start thinking too much about it get it done so that was the plan we would shoot using the sort of same kind of company same budget same time scale so same resources different mm. subject matter different formally a little bit different but create a film that would be recognizable as being the same as coming from the same group of people as as bait but get it done sort of under the under the radar and get it done quickly mm. before i would put too much pressure on myself but then the the, the problem then was that covid put right you know, a delay so then mm. there is that time to think about it but then what actually happened was you didn't think about it at all because mm. i was just thinking about covid and i was thinking more about whether cinemas were ever going to open you know, or whether we were ever going back outside again. So, so that was actually for the film, probably a really good thing to happen because it was a forced bit of distance that was put mm. on the film, which is the, the most important element of filmmaking is have a bit, having a bit of distance on the material. Most people have that through collaboration. So you bring in mm. an editor who comes in with mm. fresh eyes and, and creates something, you know, that maybe you wouldn't have, done because you're too close to it mm. that's what a, a writer does you can pitch an idea and then the writer will realize it in a way that has got distance from your original ideas mm. from it and what my filmmaking doesn't have is any real distance mm. but we had a forced year of distance yeah on the script so then when i came back to the script when denzel monk the producer said right we're good to go we're good to shoot spring late late winter early spring 21 which was a, almost a year's delay i picked up the script again having not looked at it for six months mm. and was straight away able to go well that doesn't work and this should go there and that should go there and actually i had this new context of having lived through a global pandemic that mm. could then feed into this story about isolation and solitude plus all the actual logistical and practical limitations of shooting we were still in we were still in lockdown mm. second lockdown when we shot the film so we had all of those practical and logistical restrictions to to put into the script which and i love employing all of those you know because you have to simplify things if you've got restrictions so it was it's difficult you know i, I don't think anybody i don't think i'll ever have that oh well, i'll never make a second film again but i don't think i'll ever have that that unique set of circumstances again so in some ways are quite lucky to have all mm. of that happen because by the time we came to make the film, I was just happy to be out making the film and happy to be out mm. with people. You know, it was the first time for a lot of a lot of us that we'd been out and done anything communi commun communally together. So that was kind of joyous to start with. I mean, mm. it really goes away, and the and the sort of terror of shooting a film kicks in. <laughs> but then it was, it, but. But, you know, all the way through, it was just like there was an appreciation that we were getting to mm. do this. So many people that I knew had had their films pulled or just prior to production or had been pulled during production or their what big world premieres had been pulled. So I think that mm. I was thinking, well, I'm just lucky to be making this film and didn't think too much about the audience or how it was going to be received or anything. It was just a joyous thing to be doing. That, mm. that changes completely then when you're sat in Cannes in the mm. theatre with nearly a thousand people and the curtains part and the film starts playing then then I really do 
become aware of the audience and become aware that there's people waiting for this film because of the mm. success of, of and the critical acclaim of bait. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that moment didn't come until it was too late to change anything. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Cause I, I wrote a book this year and a similar kind of process of, uh, I think there's a point where you, where it's out of your hands, isn't there? And, and it sort of, it stops being, you know, you, you can still, you still have your relationship with your work, but it's like, it's not yours anymore. You know, it's, it's like, it becomes, it go, it, it's like a child that goes off to university or something like that. And it can like, it meets people, has arguments with people. So I hope it kind of marries someone or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, so this is that sort of letting go. Gets bullied and beaten up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Asks you for a few hundred quid because they've like yeah. run out of money and and, and stuff. <laughs> um, the yeah. film was sorry, sorry. No, no. I think I think that's absolutely right. And I'm I'm in that spot at the moment where mm. I'm you know it's still premiering in territories mm. and it's still we're still having various sorts of premieres. So the other week up at the in, in at the NFT in NFT one at the BFI was the 35 millimeter print mm. premiere. And I and I didn't go. I was there and I did the Q and A. I did the intro and the Q and A, but I didn't sit and watch it because I'm at that point now where it's really important not to watch it because mm. it's not. I can't do anything with the film anymore, but it's too soon for me to objectively look at it as a finished object. Mm. Whereas you know, I look at bait. And I remember the premiere of Bait and then the subsequent screenings. I was thinking, oh, I'll change this and I'll change that. And but now it's not my film anymore. It's just mm. an ob- it's a it's a film that's out there and it exists and lots of different people have got their own relationship with it. So I can't go back and change it. And I wouldn't mm. want to change it. And I couldn't I can't now remember what I didn't like about it. You know, not that I didn't like it, but there was specific bits that I may have changed that um I can't remember what they are anymore because mm. it's just it's it's a finished object it's you can't you can't change it it's just what it is so Ennis Main isn't that for me now mm. but I can't change anything so it's really important for me just to not engage with it as a film you know and and I and and I uh, I'm just about to go out on a pre- like a big preview tour with it in mm-hmm in January and then I'll probably do that in America as well when it comes out in America um and I'll be talking about it all the time and that's absolutely fine because what I'll be talking I'll be reacting to an audience's response to it Mm. which is really illuminating because it helps you understand what you've done it also helps you or helps one understand how to do things better or how not to how not to do certain things or, or, you know, you get an idea of what works and what doesn't work. So the engagement now becomes with the audience rather than mm. the film itself, because I know there's a bit in Ennis main where there's a helicopter sound effect that comes mm. in quite early in the film. And I just wish it came in three seconds earlier. Then mm. every time I watch the film, I just think, Oh, the helicopter should have come in by now rather than now, you know, and I think, Oh, the audience would be, you know, Oh Sure, Peter Bradshaw would have given it a five-star review rather than a four-star review if that helicopter sound effect had come in three seconds. <laughs> it's just yeah. utter, utter nonsense. But that's the that's the space I'm in. So you know, I'll I'll, I'll probably like what happened with Bait. I'll probably watch it when it's on TV mm. in six months' time, and I'll watch. You know, I'd love just 
happening across bait on TV. Just thinking, oh my God, my film's on TV. I'm going to watch it. And, you know, and, it, and it's so distanced from you then because yeah. it's coming out of a television in the way that all other films that I experienced as a kid, you know, most films I saw on the TV. They came out of the TV. I was like, God, my film's coming out of the TV. And then, you know, I started watching it and it was like watching somebody else's film. But then mm. I was thinking, oh, I wonder where they put the adverts in. You know, and it's like a whole new version of a film with an advert yeah. break. So I think that's when I'll re-engage Venice Main again as a, as a film. At the moment, I'm just really excited about and really enjoying engage, engaging with... Um, with the audience who've who've seen it, who kind of tell me what they think it is, and especially with a film like Ennis Main, mm. where there's just a certain level of narrative ambiguity in it. I, you know, I get um I get told what it's about. Mm. And it's great. And I love the people who come in and don't say, Well, I've got a theory. What do you think about this? I like the people who come in and go, Well, it's clearly about this, this, and this. And I think, brilliant, because that's how I react to films that I've grown up watching. You know, I don't kind of care what the what the filmmaker thinks they've done i don't have any access to find out what they think they've done unless i read an interview and most interviews with filmmakers that i, I love they don't give anything away mm. so you know that's great to hear a hear a really strong opinion or a, you know be told this is the this is what you've done and i think oh great it, it well in your case that is what i've done so yeah i'm really i'm really i, I love talking about it but i've got it's really important for me not to watch it because that way is sort of like just kind of mental breakdown, I think. But yeah, like with the film as well, like the sort of ambiguity of the film. And, and I personally love films that, you know, like, like I don't know, all of my favourite film directors have this kind of level of ambiguity going on, you know, like the obvious classic sort of cliched example would be like David Lynch or mm-hmm. something like that. And, and with, with the ambiguity in this film, at the same time, it sort of, it does feel incredibly consistent in terms of mood though. It seems to be like, you know, in a way like, yeah, the story might be, might leave me scratching my head as to what's going on, but the mood just sort of like flows like an album would anyway and stuff like that. Was that sort of like, was the process of kind of creating the mood quite important to you? Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's difficult because I don't want it to be one note, but I do mm. want the, the mood to be consistent. So it's, it is a tricky balance. And sometimes you do need, you know, most of what I do, I just follow my gut and I know mm. in the moment whether it works or not. And then sometimes I try and explain something away post justified decision or anything like that. But most of the time I, you know, I know what works and what doesn't work. But also I think the film was so much about routine. It had to be mm. this sort of, you know, even narratively speaking, it's kind of like a, there's a mood within the narrative as well as within the sort of atmosphere and the feel of the film. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I'm just writing something at the moment that's a lot more narrative driven. It's still kind of like got a supernatural element to it. And I'm just, as I'm writing, I'm just trying to work out what the tone of it is. Mm. And it's very difficult on the page to work out what the tone is. And that's because so much of the tone is determined by the sound design, which you don't mm. really express in a screenplay. Mm. You you can, but it becomes a kind of technical yeah. document then rather than, you know, I want it to read like a, a poem. Um, mm. So you can intimate and you can kind of um, sort of provoke those other senses, but it's quite difficult to do in a script because I'm not, a, I'm not a good enough poet to, to do that you know mm. and I, th- I th- something like Lynch is very difficult you know I think if you read a, a David Lynch 
script you know structurally it might be you might recognize it as a as a david lynch script because mm. it might be missing a, a third act effectively mm. or missing backstory within character like expositional character dialogue and everything like that but the the actual kind of mood that he conjures up of ambiguity is done through the sound and through the pictures and the collision mm. between the sound and pictures and also that sort of confused time and space which is mm. which is a, which is our the language of our dreams which mm. is what for only for, for me only film can do that so you can't get that from a from a screenplay so i'm having to sort of trust a lot at the moment that the screenplay becomes the building blocks for this kind of dream feel that then is created through the shooting of the film and 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 also through the the post production and i guess it's trusting that those you can kind of perhaps leave that because it's come from the same brain that like want you know that, that can kind of go back to something a year and a half or two years later and maybe your idea will be a little bit different about fleshing it out but it will come from the same parts that you know you notice where the dream logic access point is yeah and i'm in you know i'm interested in the same things and i always have been i think i always will be so to a certain extent i'll be making the same film over and over again and with ennis main you know i sort of finished it and thought oh it's really sort of straight it's a bit kind of predictable formally it's a bit un, un unexperimental which is exactly how I felt about bait. And then you put mm. it in front of an audience and they go, God, this looks and sounds like nothing that's out at the moment. Mm. And, and lots of reviews say things like it's very different to, to bait, but it's very clearly from the same person or the same mm. group of people. So I think, I think it's a, it would be a challenge for me to make anything that doesn't feel like I authored it. And I think that, you know, sending, like I said a minute ago, that script that I sent to my mate and who's read it and he's like, you know, this is so clearly your film. You know, he just from the building blocks of the script, he can he can see it and more importantly, he can hear it. And if you can see it and hear it, then you can feel it. Because I think the thing is with film, film works with two senses, you know, mm. only connects with what you see and what you hear. But mm. the best film, the films that use the form the best evoke the other three senses mm. and so many films for me don't do that you see you see it you hear it you experience it you might even enjoy it but you don't remember it yeah whereas yeah. the one that you know makes you makes your skin crawl or you can you can you know you can smell it or you know you can almost touch it then um that they're the films that are really using the form and I'm not claiming mm. my films do that because I'd never be able to tell because I'm not an audience member for my own films but the that's what I'm that's what I'm aiming for because all of my favorite films pro evoke those other three senses and stimulate those other three senses mm. oh, amazing Mark thank you so much I think that's it thank you no yeah. it's a pleasure that was good yeah, yeah. that's that was me, Paul Hamford, talking with Mark Jenkin for Lost and Sound. And we had that conversation in that sort of weird, swampy, nebulous, dayless time 
around Christmas time where so I don't really remember what the day was we had that chat because you we do you don't really remember what days are at that kind of time thank you so much Mark for having a chat with me and thank you Zoe Miller for organizing that chat Ennis Main the original score is out now on Invader Records and the film is in the UK cinemas anyway on the 13th of January I'm not sure. I don't have the information of when it's out um, in other territories in Europe, but when it is, it's well, 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 well worth seeing. It's it's eerie, it's spooky, it's beautiful, and it's something that you have to just let yourself go with. It's a film that plays in in one of the other senses, one of the sort of senses that we're not sort of somewhere between being asleep and awake and yeah it's beautiful thanks to eso for doing the music you hear for lost and sound and lost and sound is presented and produced by me paul hampford and i'd like to take a minute to thank my sponsor here audio technica makers of high quality audio accessible to all headphones turntables cartridges microphones stuff that i use stuff that you probably use too and i record all of my interviews wearing the ath m5 zero x monitor headphones because I can sit in a cafe and I can edit afterwards as well. And that the sound insulation is so good that I just do not hear the sound around me. I don't, people can be having like a right old natter right near me. And I just don't hear that. I get on immersed in my sound, which is lovely. So head on over to audiotechnica.com, wherever you are in the world. And my book, Coming to Berlin, Global Journeys into a Club Culture and Electronic Music capital is out now on velocity press oh you can hear the s-bahn behind me can't you that's the s42 i think uh next stop from where i'm sat is hermannstrasse i hope whatever you're doing you're having a really 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 fucking lovely day and i'll chat to you soon